know you're excited to be here. And uh, that'll make it real easy on the preacher when people are here because they want to be. And uh, glad that you're gathered together already for the first service of this camp. And uh, if you've never heard me preach before, be warned. I've been told I'm painful to listen to. And that's from people who love me. So uh, if you don't like me, you may be in for a long weekend. But we just welcome all of you here and just consider it a great privilege to be a part of um, the, the move of the Lord and the work of the Lord in your assembly. And uh, calm down. I, uh, this afternoon, my wife was talking to uh, our oldest son, Elliot, and uh, he found out, you're talking about the different ministers here, and he found out that Brother Tim Dodd also attends this as part of the church here, and his jaw just dropped, and he goes, what? He goes here too? And he said, this church has an all-star lineup of ministry. And he said, they never need to have special services. And I think he's probably going to say, what's dad doing here? And uh, I think they just do it to let you all know you got it really good with the ministers God's placed amongst you. And I'm just glad to be a part of what the Lord's doing and, and have such dear friends with the ministry that's here. And we appreciate uh, Brother Tom extending the invitation to be here. He's mentioning last night in the service just how many years we've been coming, 15 years, and the number of services we've preached here. And uh, so you're probably going to hear something I've already preached because when it comes to young people, the themes are often very much the same um, to bring them to a decision. But just very happy to be here. We'll have maybe more time in the next few services uh, to greet you. But if we could just look into the word now, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'd like to read verses 1 to 4, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, Start with verse 1 and read to verse 4. Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And so then we know that it's speaking about the time that we live in now as it speaks about the last days. So it describes our time as perilous. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. The scripture describes the people that surround you and the age that you're living in. So if we could just bow our heads in a word of prayer before you're seated. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be gathered in your presence tonight. And Lord, as we, in my heart, even prepared for these services for these last several few months. And as we thought about the young people, my thoughts were often drawn to this room right here. And Lord, I thought about all the times you've moved on this campground, whether it be in the tent or whether it be in these winter services in this in this building. And Lord, I begin to think of the power of precedent and how if you've done it before, it establishes an expectation for what you'll do again. And Lord, you constantly came to my heart in the reminder that each generation gets a chance at the word because each generation has a chance at a revival. And that revival is a chance at the word. And this weekend, it's another generation's chance. And Lord, as as long as time is unfolding, as long as this message has been preached, you foresaw that it would come to these this group, that they would be sitting here tonight. 
And I believe, Father, that you want to do again in these young people what you've done before. And I ask, Father, that you would come tonight in a very special way as you already ministered to us tremendously last night in preparing our hearts for this appointed season. Lord, may you come tonight, just take us further in that, that we could just start off on the right foot with this, these camp services, just to ready our minds and focus our thoughts and grab the attention of these young people. For I believe that you want to continue to speak to them through the remainder of these services. So tonight, Lord, we yield all to you. Praying that you do again what you've done for other generations. Do again what you did for the parents of these young people. What you did for their older older siblings, Lord. Give them their revival. A move of the Holy Ghost. The breaking of chains. And the sealing of, of the seed into your kingdom. And the baptism into your body. So Lord, we commit all to you. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may have your seats. <clears throat> I'd like to... I'm not sure if I, what I'm looking at here, is that what they see out there? Okay. Apologize if there's little sidebar comments here, but I'm just want, just gonna have to get used to a few, few things here. I believe the title is already showing uh, to you tonight, and we just, I want you maybe to ponder it. My theme for the weekend and central theme for the entire camp is this question, who are you? And it's a question that you, uh, I'm perhaps asking you, and I would say it's, God's not asking you the question. He knows who you are. But it's a question to cause you to think yourself about who you are. And so as we want to use this theme for the camp of um, identifying who you are, we could... I could take a lot of time just to maybe look at this question from an academic standpoint or maybe a philosophical standpoint. And there's there's truths that we could say who you are is rooted in your nature and how that you are derived from two parents, a, a father and a mother. No matter how much they tell you these days, it takes a man and a woman to have have a child. And that so it speaks to your nature and that you have a particular nature um, and a DNA that establishes the parameters of what you'll how you'll look and how you'll act and how you'll be. And we know that your DNA goes quite deep where it can actually determine what kind of diseases you'll be susceptible to. And uh, maybe just uh, whether or not you'll have cancer or some uh, some sickness or illness. It's all in the nature that you receive. But then also, uh, not so much maybe philosophically, but scientifically, they'd say that it's not just your nature that determines what you're going to be or who you'll be and how you'll look and what you're susceptible to and uh, how tall you'll grow and those things. But it's also the nurture that you're under that'll determine uh, how that DNA is expressed. And science has gone to great lengths to determine that it's just not your DNA that determines your destiny, but certain factors can come to bear in your DNA and change um, how it's expressed. And they found that in certain uh, certain DNA structures or certain cultures that famine has a way of triggering certain things in the DNA that results in certain um, uh, certain physical traits and characteristics in successive generations. So it's just not your nature, but it's also your nurture. And that's just if we're looking at it in a non-spiritual aspect about who you are. And both the question of nature and nurture speaks of identity and relationship. And I think that is central to the question perhaps that you're going to be asked this weekend in who am I? And a question perhaps presented to you, who are you? Is it has to do with your identity, but that it also has to do with your relationship. And so I'm, as I'm just beginning this subject this weekend and asking this question, who are you? I want to speak on a maybe a subject of born into chaos because uh Many studies have shown that the time that you're born in 
and when you're born has more influence on a person than even their family. And so they determine that parents may be a certain way and parents may believe in certain things or they may endeavor to achieve certain things or have certain social statuses or economic statuses and and certain likes and certain things that they pursue. And they found that it's the time that a person's born that really shapes them and influences them more than what their parents are like or what their parents do. And there's actually an ancient a proverb that says men resemble the times more than they resemble their fathers. So a person is going to resemble the time that they're raised up in. They're going to resemble the society that raised them. And they say that the society that molds you when you're young will stay with you the rest of your life. And so in you are going to look more like your environment and the society you're raised in more than you look like your parents. And not not in maybe physical characteristic, but perhaps even in fashion and likes and dislikes and ambitions and things that you want to pursue and how you'd want to be identified. You're going to desire to be identified with your time and your age. And it's going to be your times that shape your uh, your image more than perhaps your parents or your fathers. And we're just looking at it from a natural standpoint when we speak of that. And so the social environment that you are raised up in and the economic status uh, that you're uh, raised up in, the political climate, all those things matter in shaping a person in today's world, in today's society. And so I want you to ponder this now as we think about um, who are you and the subject of being born into chaos. And I want to start with something very, very profound that perhaps none of you have ever thought of. You ready? You didn't choose to be born. I know it's mind blowing. I mean, when you just take a moment to think about it, none of you chose to be born. You weren't consulted. You weren't asked. No one said, hey, look, this is an opportunity. I think you should take it uh, and um, and that you should you should be born and you should be a, a person. But you were brought into the world without your consent. You weren't asked. You weren't given permission. You weren't given an opportunity to object. And I'm not the first person to think about this because there's a gentleman who uh, found this headline. And maybe you could read it. But this is an article. It says, did you consent to being born? Why one man is suing his parents for giving birth to him. And by the looks of it, they may be asking the same question. (laughs) But it's a 27 year old. Uh, He's from Mumbai, he's Indian, and he believes that his parents should not have created him without his consent. And if you begin to think about the way people are thinking, the way people are acting, and and how individuality is, and how persons should be able to identify themselves however they want, it does kind of create a very interesting um, ethical question of how two people could choose to have a child and not consult the child in the matter. And the child not have a choice, say, whoa, no, I don't want to be born in India, or I don't want to be born in this time. I don't want to be born to those kind of parents, or I don't want to live at all. And this guy's actually quite serious about it, uh, but yet I, I think it is um, pretty crazy. I think his mother said she will agree to, you know, if she could find some way to make it right, she'll accept the fact that she shouldn't do it. If he could just somehow explain to her what she can do to make it right. And I don't know if she's implying that maybe if she just let him kill him and solve the problem. But it's something to consider, isn't it? The fact that you didn't choose to be born. You weren't able to choose the time that you were born. You weren't able to choose the place that you were born. You didn't have a choice in determining the circumstances under which you would come into existence. 
And so you're born to parents, not of your choosing. You're born into an economy, not of your choosing. You're born into a climate and a culture, which is not of your choosing. And if you think about that, just in general, nobody had the choice to be born. They couldn't choose. Well, I want to be Canadian or I want to be born in this neighborhood. I want to have parents that make this kind of money. They didn't have that choice at all. But now I can be much more specific to those of you who are here. None of you requested to be born to parents that believe what is called the message. None of you had that opportunity to say, well, okay, I want to be born. And they said, well, here's your choice of religions. And you just kind of went through it and you checked through some message, message, the message that what is that? Uh, and chose to be born to parents that believe the message. And, and I know that in speaking to a, a young people such as this, perhaps maybe the majority of you, if, if maybe not all of you have parents that believe the message and it wasn't something you could opt into to be born to parents that believe what we call the message. Yet here you are. On a Thursday night at a, in the middle of the winter at a youth camp, time when they're not having camps at all anywhere, you're having a youth camp and you're at a youth camp that's hosted by a church that you go to that you didn't perhaps choose to go to. Um, parents paying the way for you to be here, believe the message and you didn't have any choice in that at all. And uh, are you did you all have a choice? I don't get any amens on this fact that you didn't have a choice. It's kind of like, well, brother, Aaron, you don't know how we do things in Canada. We're, never mind. I won't say that. But you've come to, you're coming to the age of accountability in circumstances that you didn't choose. And I think that, that thought, the age of accountability is important to ponder and to think about it. Because now as you enter at 12 years old, 13 years old, you're having to answer um, for your decisions. Um, you're being held responsible for more, uh, more than when you were younger for the choices you make. And decisions you make now have a way of impacting you beyond um, just the immediate uh, punishment or the immediate consequence. But you're saying things, doing things, choosing to do things now that can determine where you'll be 5, 10, 15 years, maybe perhaps the rest of your life. Even at 12, 13, 14 years old, you're, you're accountable now. You're held responsible for the decisions you make. You're expected to do things uh, um, differently than perhaps you were before because there's a greater responsibility upon you. And, and these things arise naturally. They re- rise within the dynamics of family. But the age of accountability is remarkable because then you come to a place where you must answer to God. The age of accountability, even at 12, 13 years old, it comes a time when you're going to be held responsible or accountable to God and you're going to have to answer for your decisions. You have to answer for your actions and actually more consequences that you incur um, for the behavior that you exhibit, the attitude that you have and the things that you do. Whereas before, perhaps uh, you didn't quite feel the brunt of it beyond maybe just your parents correcting you. But now God's going to hold you responsible for decisions you make and you'll reap in the flesh for whatever you sow. And that comes with that age of accountability. And no other age has stood in the place that you have the opportunity of standing in today. And I can apply that to much more than just the young people sitting here. I include myself as part of this, the generation that's in this age that's standing in such a unique, unique place. In all other ages, the message to the age and even the experience of the Holy Ghost that a person received uh, led them through life. They come to a birth, which the new birth is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And that seals a person into the body of Christ. And they would have the leadership of the Holy Spirit in their life. And they would go to church and they would live as Christians. And they would grow under the ministry of the word. And they would be maturing. And the experience in every other age was an experience that led them through that process to a grave. In every other age. But this one. 
And this one's unique because the seal of the Holy Ghost, the new birth, which is the baptism of the Holy Ghost, is to take an individual in this age, bring them through the same process, but not lead them to a grave, but lead them to a change and a meeting in the air. And just that thought alone makes us start thinking about the generation that we're living like, wait a minute, or we're not all just destined to a grave. We're not all just going through life and trying to make good decisions and 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 raise up another generation. And then we're going to lay silently in the grave. There's going to be a generation that's raised up that's going to be changed. And these bodies are going to be changed. They're going to place death under their feet. And you are so you're standing in a place that generations before could not even begin to speak about in the way that you can. And we know that we're living in that unique time because the prophet taught us that in no other age has it been required to have rapturing faith. And so God hasn't given the faith because it's never been required. So in this age, because it's required, God gives it because there's going to be that moment where there'll be a living who are changed to go meet the Lord in the air. And that aspect alone makes the time that you're living in different than any other time before. And there's other aspects to it. And perhaps we often think about that side of it when we think about how unique the time is that we're living in. But I want to start looking at it in a maybe another light. And that's why even choosing the term chaos and being born into chaos to get us thinking about the time that we're living in. Brother Bram said the world is in one of the most chaotic times of darkness that it's ever stood in. So the age that you live in is a chaotic time of darkness and one of the most chaotic times of darkness. He says it's the darkest hour this world has ever seen. He said there's never been an age so deceptive as this age. So it's the darkest hour. It's the most deceptive hour. It's one of the most chaotic times that there's ever been. And the message modern events made clear by prophecy. He says it's a true time of perversion. And that is so absolutely. He says it's a true time of perversion. And he says men are trying to wear women's clothes. And women wearing men's clothes. Well, if they were trying then, they've succeeded because they're doing it now. And he says men men are trying to wear women's clothes and women wearing men's clothes. And men leaving the hair like women and women, women having the hair like men. He goes, what's the matter with this people anyhow? He says, have the very threads of decency and honor left this nation and these people, this world? So the very threads of decency have left society. They've left the people. And so as Brother Branham identifies in 1965, this move to where men want to be women, women want to be men. And referring to the hairstyles and how they dress and how that was creeping in. And if we want to say it was in seed form, then it's reached its maturity now. 54 years later, these things have become so prevalent. Things have become so common and accepted. We know the very threads of decency and the very threads of honor have left the people. So he says, this is a horrible time. So it's a time of perversion. The threads of decency and honor have left. He says, this is a horrible time. He says, but it's the most glorious time in the world to preach the gospel. So what a paradox of times. We say we're on the very verge of a change of our body. And it's the most, he says, it's the most glorious time. It's a beautiful time. It's such a, it's the golden age. I think in one place, Brother Branham refers to it. And so we can emphasize all these great and wonderful things as to why it's wonderful to be alive in this age. But there's also this reality that's the worst it's ever been. It's the most chaotic it's ever been. It's the most perverse it's ever been. And so it's such a paradox. And therefore, it's a confusing time. It's a very confusing time to be alive. Brother Branham said it's a treacherous hour, treacherous hour. He says it's a, but it's the most glorious time of all the ages. Treachery on one hand, glory on the other. And it's, it's a coexisting. It's at the same time. 
We could read from Revelations chapter 3, verse 17, where it begins to talk about, or it's talking about the Laodicean church age, which is the age that we live in. And he calls the people wretched and miserable. Wretched. They're miserable, uncomfortable. They're afflicted. There's, there's great sorrow and there's great uh, perplexity. And it's, it's an insanity that plagues the minds. And it's an insanity that plagues their thought process. And it speaks to it because on one hand, they're rich and increased with goods and don't have need of what's being offered. And they, and they don't want what God offers and they don't want the, the, the solution to their problems. They're rich and increased with goods and, and maybe crying out for certain things and wanting certain things. But when the solutions offer, they're like, we don't need that. We want more of what we have. We, we're rich, increased with goods. We want more of that. That'll solve the problems. That'll take away the depression. That'll take away the anxiety. Just give me more things. And they don't want what God's offering. So therefore they're wretched and miserable and poor because it says they're blind and they're naked and they don't even know it. It's the worst of all the ages. Brother Branham, when he writes in the church age book, I believe he says there's not one good thing God has to say about Laodicea. We could take a lot of time about how it's an anxious time. It's an unsettled time. And I could I could take this portion here and some of these details and I could make it more of a. I could use different words and I could maybe put it in terms of philosophy or psychology and I could give a talk at a university and I could kind of use this very thing and they would all agree and they would all nod their head and say, yes, perplexing times and, and, and these times are chaotic and these times are confusing and, and speak to these things and even talk about melancholy and depression and anxiety and science would begin to affirm, yes, this is characterizing the world that we live in. People are more anxious than they've ever been. They're, they're more depressed than they've ever been. They, they suffer from many more mental disorders than they've ever been and eating disorders and and all sorts of maladies and they would all agree with this perhaps a lot of the things that we would elicit as to why this world is insane they may not agree with but the age is insane it's a neurotic age it's a depressed age it's a miserable age and so that's the age that you live in that's the age that you're growing up in and as you come to the age of accountability and in this chaotic world and surrounded by some of these things, and we'll go into them more deeply, you are asked to abstain from things. You are, you are taught to refrain from certain ad- actions. You're taught to abstain from indulging in certain things in the flesh. And, and you're taught to obey. And perhaps maybe we could put it this way in some inclusive way. You're told to, this is what the message teaches. This is the standard in the home. This is what we believe at church. Um, this is how you ought to act. And this is how you ought to treat one another. This is how you should dress. This is how you should refrain from certain activities. You do this. You don't do that. And you're asked to do all these things. And perhaps if I could have the time, you could say, all right, let's just start. Tell me what you're taught to do, what you're taught not to do. And you guys could give me a list that would fill up a chalkboard. And we wouldn't even be done. And you're asked, all of you are asked to do this in this time that we're living and coming to the age of accountability and expected to do it. And you're all doing it without the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I'm not taking it away from anybody here who has it. But even without having it, you're asked to do it. Right, young people? You can just look at me. Just pretend... These guys aren't here. And think about it. You're asked to do this. And I don't know if any of you thought about it before, but your parents ask you to essentially do everything they're doing. But you don't, some, many of you don't even have the Holy Ghost. And they do it because they've had an experience. They do it because they've been sealed with the Holy Ghost. They do it because the experience is real. They do it because the Holy Ghost drives them. They do it because they have a revelation. And then you're taught to do likewise. And you're being asked to do the very same things your parents do. But yet you don't have the life liver inside of you like they do. 
You know, many of you are probably going, uh-huh, yeah, never thought of it that way. I'm going to use that on Monday. I'm not going to give you a chance to use it because I've got you for the next few days. They don't. And for, if I could put it this way, just to add another layer upon that for decades. And I, I, I'd like to put myself in this category, having been raised in the message to message parents. In the way that society was structured and technology and just the way that our homes were uh, uh, established and churches and different things. It was, I could say that message children for decades could achieve some distance from certain things. And you could be isolated from certain things. And so there was a shelter in our homes and you'd go to school for eight hours and you'd come home and then you were kind of sheltered in the dynamics of home with the token applied to the home. And you had your parents, you had your siblings, you had your uh, your mother and father there to interact with and you could find distance from the world through your home. And you could do so with the churches and your fellowship circle and the different camps and different things that you were a part of. And you were fellowshipping with other message believers and you were at home at night with message believers. And you you could achieve a distance from the world and the voice of the enemy was far away and other influences and opposing forces. And there was a way to get distance from all that. There was such a distance from the world that it kept the voice of the skeptics just a little bit muffled. And perhaps the the critics, their voice was far away and you wouldn't hear it. And you could perhaps go to school and go into school. You could hear things and see things and things could be said. But then you could come home at night and say, I had someone asking me why I don't cut my hair. And someone was getting on to me for always wearing a skirt. And, and then the parents could take time to say, you know what? This is what the Bible says. And I went through the same thing. And this is there. And, and we're different. And you're going to be told this. And you're going to be told that. And you'd, you'd have a time of washing at home. And, and you'd, you'd fellowship at church with people of a like mind who also are somewhat being uh, separated from the things of the world. And it was uh, it was just a different time in prior generations and other decades. And I could testify to this and perhaps maybe Brother John could and Brother Michael could testify to that when they were raised uh, in, in their family and in churches, that there was a way to keep the world at a distance. And I just want to say it's not the same anymore. You, the young people sitting here from 12 to 21, those of you are 22, whatever the ages are, the young people here, you are living in a time that's very different from the time that I would grew up in. I can even say when I preached the, uh, my first time to preach the winter camp 13 years ago, I believe it was, uh, it, it was very different 13 years ago for that generation. For, for the 22-year-olds then and the 16-year-olds then, uh, what they were facing then, it's the same spirits, the same temptations, the same challenges. But yet society as a whole has evolved. Technology has evolved. The, the circumstances, the environment, the challenges are different. Same spirit, same temptations. But now you're living in a different environment, in a different world than they were even living in 13 years ago. So you're not living in the same conditions that I grew up in, that Brother Michael grew up in, Brother John, and even the the environment Brother Tom was raised in. We're not living in the same condition that our parents lived in. The parents who are raising us now and and the struggles they went through and the fights that they had and the things that they overcame, they they have that as part of their testimony, part of their experience. and, And they can reach down and draw from those situations when they come into a hard trial and they can look at a circumstance you're going through and they can think back how they went through it too. And they can believe for overcoming. But yet your situation is unique to you and it may feel like nobody else is going through it. It's a much harsher uh, environment that you're living in 
than the one that even I grew up in. And the ones that uh, perhaps your older brothers and sisters grew up in. It's much more cynical. Uh, much more hateful. And there's the, a respect that was often afforded to those who had a conviction or a belief is not afforded anymore. They uh, just to say, well, you be- if that's what you believe and and I can respect that. And if you believe this, they could respect that and perhaps give you some distance and just respect you for uh, abiding by what you believe and what your convictions are. Those days are long gone. You didn't come and come to the age of accountability in a time of innocence. It's not an innocent time. There's so much skepticism. Uh, There's criticism that surrounds you. There's always been criticism of the message. One of the things you have to be careful of is in defense of the message. They say, well, when brother, why didn't they say it when brother Branham was here? Why didn't they attack him when he was here? They did. He was, you just have to listen to the message to know they were opposing him and they were attacking him. Uh, but God vindicated him time and time again. God was with them. And he, and he withstood those critics and his ministry continued and God vindicated and did great things. And so it's not that there wasn't criticism before, but now there's no decency or integrity. There's no honesty with it because now they'll just lie. Now they'll just make things up. Now, whereas before there would be some honesty with things and they would take certain things and maybe they'd say, well, he teaches this and he preaches that. And they would draw from the Bible and they would they would have complaints according to doctrine and certain teachings. Well, now they'll just lie about it. And now they'll just twist things and manipulate things as they always have done. But now it's much closer to you. It's much harsher. There's much more skepticism. And not just in the criticism of perhaps the message, but the criticism of things that we believe that are fundamental to our faith. And in this skepticism and criticism, it's really, it's an age of violence. As I mentioned a moment ago, it's an age of lies. They'll just lie. So you're born into an age of violence, an age of hatred, an age of lies. I can put it this way. You've been born into a war. It's a war you didn't start. It's a war you didn't choose. It's a war you don't want. I'm sure many of you had the thought, I just wish I wasn't living with the conflict. I wasn't living with the struggle. I wasn't living with so much, uh, uh, many things competing for my thought and for my time. And so many things competing against the ideas that I believe and that I want to believe. And the things that are presented to me elsewhere. You just wish that you were much further away from it. You didn't have to consider it. Didn't have to think about it. But you you didn't choose to come into that conflict. But here you are. You're born into a war. War means to the word, very etymology, the origin of the word means to be brought into confusion. War is chaos. And that's what you've been born into. You've been born into chaos. And if perhaps I've succeeded in just those few moments of, uh, of, of making you think, well, this is real depressing. Um, I want to realize there's greater depths to that. If you want to just turn to Second Timothy chapter 3 where we're reading from. And I want to read from these scriptures because it speaks to the time that you're living in right now. Speaks to the age that you're growing up in. These are the people that you're surrounded by. As Paul begins to prophesy as he writes to Timothy. Timothy being a young man also. He writes to him and he's wanting him to understand the age that he's living in. Or he wants him to understand what can be coming or what's going to happen in the in the last days. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Uh, terrible times. Perilous. Dangerous. 
and not dangerous in that you have to watch out for your health because of diseases or that you would have to be careful because of wars. But it's perilous spiritually. And there's great antagonism and great hatred and venom and animosity towards truth. And you find that's exactly how Paul begins to describe what's to come when he talks about the nature of people. And he says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. And I I was pondering this and it just kind of struck me naturally that men should be lovers of their own selves. I'll maybe turn this so you guys can see it. I don't want you to be left out. Isn't that nice? Lovers of their own selves. And you know what? This is, if you read it, if you didn't know how to read, you might say lovers of their own selfies. (laughs) And that's exactly the generation we're living in. They're lovers of their own selfies. And this is something that's quite common anymore. To see images like this. And look how young young these young people are. These These would be campers. And this might be taking place quite a bit tomorrow on the mountain. But the age that you're living in, it is the selfie generation is what they call it. And it's something that speaks to the, the way that people think and the way that they're conscious about their image. And, and, uh, and the Bible's even speaking, there's going to come a time where they're going to love themselves. And there's even a, a book that came out in 2017, I believe it was, it's called The Selfie Generation. Uh, And the subtitle, How Our Self-Images Are Changing Our Notions of Privacy, Property, Sex, Consent, and Culture. And so as people become more uh, uh, enamored with the way they look and how they're presenting themselves and how they're portraying their lives, and they begin to look at their self-image, as they examine their own self-image, it actually changes their attitude towards things. Changing their approach to things. This was six years ago, this cover of Time Magazine, the Me, Me, Me Generation. And it says millennials are lazy, entitled narcissists who still live with their parents. And, uh, well, that was six years ago. And millennials perhaps speak to those who would be much older than you. But that's the time that we're living in. Where people are lovers of their own selfies. And it's a selfie generation. They want to be at the fit center. They want to have a, a craft a particular image of themselves. And so they're lovers of their own selves. They're covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Now, it can't get any worse than that. But Paul is not creating a, a, a hierarchy of sins here. He's just saying this is what everyone, uh, this is the nature of the lump, so to speak, in the last days. They shall be pl- blasphemers. And then he says disobedient to parents. And he, and he hasn't taken a step down in degrees. He's just kind of putting them all on the same level. Blasphemy is on par with disobeying your parents. And if the parents were here, they probably would have said amen so loud we'd have got feedback <laughs> on the monitor. But blasphemy, disobedient to parents, and then joined with that unthankful. And so these things really speak to the heart of even us as young people, the things that we're challenged with, being lovers of our own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, they're ungrateful, they have no gratitude or appreciation for the sacrifices that take place, for the things that are provided to them, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, make a promise and not keep it, false accusers, incontinent, that's no self-control, fierce. And that word just stood out to me more and more in thinking about this generation. They're fierce. Sure. Amen. They're savage. Yeah. They're brutal. Yeah. 
There's no, there's no empathy. There's no thinking through things. They don't care if it doesn't align with their thought process. If it doesn't fit with their ideology, if it's not what they're believing, they'll just be savage and they'll be hurtful. They'll be spiteful. They'll want to do anything they can do to destroy you and belittle you and bully you and make you feel inferior. That's the time that we're living in. And the ferocity and the, and the savageness is towards those that are good because it's despisers of those that are good. If you're not good, you're on their side. And so they, they're fierce towards those that are good. They're traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. As Peter writes in even Jude, they still to be murmurs, complainers. They're going to be mockers. And what do they scoff at? What do they mock? The very promise of the day. The very promise of the Lord that he's brought to pass. And the hatred of truth. I think we even spoke on this somewhat at the, the banquet we had a couple years ago in the fall. Uh, how that the climate is so there's so much hatred towards truth and the hatred towards truth. It's a there could be a disagreement perhaps with somebody. But now if you disagree, there's great hatred that's exhibited. And as we mentioned before, that truth used to be something that was the ultimate. Now it's just facts and how that the facts are actually greater than truth and that your truth is different than my truth. And everyone has a truth. So they've made truth nothing in facts preeminent. And that's just a lie of the devil. And so if you have a truth, they become very hateful toward it. They become very blatantly uh, have an animosity toward it. It's more bold than it's ever been. And those that oppose truth are very sinister. They're vindictive. They do anything to tear it down and to harm it. And that's that's what you've been born into. And you didn't choose to be born into this. But that's what you were born into. And it can be a very, and and just I know that perhaps it may not be so much of a preaching pace. Uh, and it may be a little bit different the way that it's coming across to you. And, and if the pace is bothersome, I apologize. Just listen to the matter, not the manner. Because it's the matter that matters, not the manner. And so if you could just think about what I'm saying, the subject matter, and ponder it very deeply. And, and not look for me to get a little bit excitable and move around. But just think about what I'm saying. I, I believe God's really going to speak to your heart and has already. Uh, and if you could just think what I'm about to say, it can be a very scary time to be your age and living. You're dead. It wouldn't be scary. You might be scary because you're dead, but it's a very scary time to be alive right now for you. Right. It's a very scary time, a very confusing world that you're confronted with. And it's one thing perhaps to be confronted with it, but then the world begins to demand answers and they want you to take a side and they want you to declare something and they want you to take a stand. They want you to exhibit certain attitudes. They want you to agree with their position. They want to know where do you stand on certain things. And listen, I'm sure we all, if we don't go, if we go to public school, we have employers and we're on the job. There's many things and conversations that come up and they go, I can't believe this happened. I can't believe that this is, this is what they believe. And you're over there going, oh my, I hope they don't find out what I believe. Can you believe this? Can you believe that? And you're like, uh, yeah, uh, if we could just keep it at that. Uh, and you, you, some of you probably thinking, man, if they found out what I would believe, I'd probably go viral at my school. They found out what, what I believed. I probably, I'd probably lose my job because it's a very scary and confusing time to be alive. Uh, a national publication just for their March issue had an article. They did a whole story and they followed a 17 year old boy in Wisconsin and one of the statements that was made in the article, they just followed him, what his struggles were and what he was going through and the different things that a 17-year-old faces. And this is what they said. Grappling with the world has to has to be more complicated for kids than it's ever been. This is said of a 17-year-old worldly boy. 
uh, um, who spends his days playing video games and having a girlfriend and, and going to parties or whatever. And there's no church at all. I don't think there was ever church mentioned at all. God or Christ or anything mentioned in the article. Just following a worldly boy who goes to school and likes to dress a certain way and do his hair a certain way and has a girlfriend, plays video games and goes online and has social media. And he's real confused. I don't know what I can say and what I can't say. I don't know what to agree with and what I shouldn't agree with. And, and they're so confused and they're saying that just for a regular 17 year old kid, it's more complicated for kids than it's ever been. And they're saying this about worldly kids. And then you're thrust into a, just a niche of a niche of a niche as message believers. And there's so many hashtags. Ah, parents don't even know what that is. You know, hashtag, like, what are you doing? Using a phone, a phone, dial pad? What is that? What's a hashtag? And there's so many hashtags that we're confronted with. And there's a, a hashtag me too. And there's a, and there's a real move that moves behind that. And it's bringing, there's bringing accountability to people uh, whose behavior has been inappropriate. There's a emboldening of certain things. And so you're confronted with these issues that come up. And there's a hashtags for gender identity and gender fluidity where you don't have to be one of two genders. You can be on a spectrum of genders, which is just very difficult to understand how that can be. But yet now there's so many different words for it. You're like, I'm sorry, what is that? Sis what? Huh? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man. You know? And, and yet there's still, there's great caution anymore. You have to be very careful if you call someone sir and you assume their gender. You say, I'm sorry, ma'am, sir. I, I didn't know. <laughs> It'd be very confusing, very difficult. And then things, certain, certain social issues uh, become very pervasive and, and many times there's just there's a, a truth behind it and there's a wrong that needs to be right. And there's there, there's a great offense that's taken place and things, attitudes and, and discrimination and great offenses. And they need to be corrected. And they shouldn't be. But they take on a momentum and sometimes the causes are perverted and they spill over into terrible attitudes. And we have to be careful. We can't take sides in those things. Right. I, we have a we have a congregation back home. Well, we have um, maybe 150, 200 uh, people in our church that are from, from Africa. And we have a youth group that's uh, very multicultural from many different African countries and from Spanish-speaking countries and South America and Central America, North America. And it's a very uh, a mixed group as they all come together. And I, you could see how certain causes come along and it would cause certain maybe African-American or Africans. And they're being challenged uh, uh, to be more bold with uh, with uh, racial issues. And they're being told that they're being oppressed and they're start, they can get real politically motivated. And then they got to turn and face all their white friends. And they're saying, you know, black lives matter. And who's going to say, no, I'm sorry, they don't. Donald Trump might. I don't know. But it's idiotic to have to say, no, they don't. Because they absolutely do. And then in response to it, all of a sudden, hashtag blue lives matter. And now all of us are just so stunned and shocked and confused because now we're trying to figure out who are the blue people. All the hashtags. Boy, we could spend a lot of time talking about what's trending these days. But there's hashtag privilege. There's hashtag the future is female. All these different hashtags that come and they're, they're voices that challenge us. They're things that are trending. Things that spread through our social circles and spread through this society that we live in. And it's challenging us. And a lot of the issues that are uh, very pervasive have to do with identity. 
And it causes us to question our identity. It causes us to question, uh, uh, what is it that I, where do I belong? How do I fit in? Who, who do I relate to? Who am I close, closely associated with? What are my likes and dislikes? And listen, it's become so perverted toward now certain, um, relationships. And if I could just maybe be a little free and I'll try to do it with some restraint, but there's so much of lifting up in particular, uh, queer relationships and certain, uh, uh things in the world today that there can be a pressure on somebody who's completely normal, or if I could just say heterosexual, but certain attitudes and certain lies can be lifted up so much to where you're made to feel as if something's wrong with you if you can't relate and identify with that. It used to be a time where it was cool to be the quarterback. It was cool to be the star athlete. It was cool to be this. And in school, it was cool and it was admired. And it was a fad maybe to wear your hat a certain way or it was a fad to, to tighten up your pants and roll them up real tight. And everybody could be cool because all they had to do is do this. And you were cool. And you could be up. And everybody could look at you. And that, that's, that's how you could be cool. But now it's cool to be bi. And, and, and people lift up certain relationships and, and likes for same sex. And that's what's trendy and that's what's cool. And that's what makes someone really stand out. Listen, you're growing up in a crazy world. You've been born into chaos. I could roll up my pants at school and be cool. But now people ask me, are, are, are you bi? Are you gay? How do you, how do you fit in on this? Are you going to go march with us tomorrow? And the, the things that you face, it's, it's no longer where you can just stay in the middle and stay out of it. You can't just say, well, that's against my religion or I don't believe that way. No, they're just going to be horrified. We, uh, went to, I went to get my hair cut this past week and they wanted to put, they brought it, my sons in with me and my three boys and they had something on the TV and they said, put something on for kids. And they said, have you ever watched Peter Pan? My kids like, nope, never watched Peter Pan. And I said, go ahead and call Child Protective Services. And they started joking about doing it. You know, never let your kids watch Peter Pan. But there's no, no, there's really not a middle ground. You got to be on one side. Everything's polarizing. The issues are polarizing. It divides into two sharply different groups and puts you on different sides. What's your opinion? It polarizes. Everything becomes so sensationalized. Everything's so aggressive and everything's just so, they want to just put you on different sides. You gotta be on this side or you gotta be on that side. And there's no decency or respect with it, with, in regards to it. But Brother John said something last night. He said a lot of things, but one of the things he said over and over again is God is interested. God is interested. And I'm not sharing this information with you to let you know this is what you're going through. Because would you just agree with me? You know this already. I mean, some of you are probably thinking he doesn't even know what he's talking about. but He's getting close. I'm not preaching this to you so that you would all of a sudden wake up and go, like, oh, my goodness, this world's crazy. And oh, my goodness, there's hashtags. And, and I, I'm not saying this to you because I'm trying to talk down to you and educate you and wake you up to the world you're growing up in. You know it. Sure. So God didn't put it on my heart to take 30 minutes or whatever it's been to emphasize the world that you're growing up in so that you would know. But God did this so that you would know he knows. That you would begin to realize that God knew that you would be living in chaos. God knew when you would be born. God chose you to be born in the circumstances that you were born in. God puts you in the family that you're in. He put you in the time that you're in. God knew exactly what you'd be going through. And God knows the chaos that you're in. 
God knows. He, he, he is, he is aware of what you're facing. He's aware of the uniqueness of it. He knows it's different than what your parents went through. He knows you face different challenges. He knows that things are more pervasive and things are, uh, are more offensive and things are more uh, in your face than it ever been before. And because of that, he's going to speak honestly to you this weekend. God knows what you're going through. God knew how crazy it was going to be. Brother Branham said in the message, how can I overcome? He said, it's the greatest sinful age. It's more sin in this age than there's ever been. And the powers of Satan are many times harder to fight than it was in any age. God knows that today you're fighting the power of Satan that's been harder than it was in any other age. Perhaps we often hear the power of the message and, and taking God at his word and a positive confession and, the, and the, the power of the spoken word and, and this rapture time that we're in and the opening of the word, the third pull and all these things that we can begin to, that we digest and we think about, we hear preached at church and it's preached with such a, a, such a dynamic way, such a powerful way. And you see the moving of the Holy Spirit, you hear the testimonies and there's a way to where there's a part of you that knows that that's a particular reality. You know that that's real. Perhaps you see it faithfully lived out in your parents and if there's any listening it's a hypocrisy in the parents that become the hardest thing for the children and and perhaps just putting the hypocrisy aside maybe there's a way that you see yes i know that there's something real i see that god is real and these things are lifted up and you see the tremendous structure in church and you see the people with great testimonies they live above the things of the world and and that part gets a lot of acknowledgement but yes god has also said that this is the most sinful age there's ever been and satan's powers are greater now than they've ever been before And you're born into a world without the baptism of the Holy Ghost and have to face those powers without the benefit of the Holy Ghost on the inside of you. And as you come to the age of accountability, you're fighting chaos. You're going through chaos. You're fighting these people of 2 Timothy chapter 3. You're bombarded with all those things. Those things are just plaguing you and fighting you and coming up against you. And you're having to deal with all those things. But God spoke it beforehand. He knows how sinful this age is. He knows these powers are worse than they've ever been. Brother Branham said the whole lids come off hell and the streams of demon power are pouring in from everywhere. Brother Branham talked about a vision that he had when he was 14 years old about going to hell. And he had a vision of hell. And then in 1964, he's in J.C. Penney, and he sees these women coming off an escalator, and he sees the very same thing that he saw in a vision. He now sees in the flesh, and he makes the statement, and there I was again, standing there in J.C. Penney's store, back in hell again. When Brother Branham was 14, he had to have a vision to go to hell. But now in 1964, it's hell on earth. The whole lids come off hell. It doesn't take a vision to go to hell. It's hell on earth right now. Brother Branham didn't say, I went into a vision again. No, he saw the women. He saw the influence of hell. He saw the influence of the demons. He says, it's hell on earth, and you're growing up in hell. It's exactly what you're facing. Brother Branham in the message, blush, message blushing prophet, it's in 1956, and he's having an altar call, and he, he talks about young women coming forward. He says, young women coming, weeping, life before them. He says, they're at, a, at the crossroad. Are you listening? Are you listening? Is anybody asleep? Look to your left. Look to your right. Look behind you. Anybody asleep? If they're asleep, wake them up. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be. I just know we have to be out of here Sunday. That's all I know. We have to be out of here Sunday. 
Or really, I just have a flight on Wednesday, so I can take my time here. As I've been told before, Brother Aaron, preach as long as you want. We're all leaving at 8. Just turn the lights off when we're done, when you're done. (laughs) But then he says this. They're at a crossroads, and he says, they are a victim of circumstances. So if they're a victim, it means it wasn't of their own volition. It wasn't of their choosing. But they are the victim of circumstances. The circumstances have victimized them. The circumstances have harmed them. They're coming to this age of accountability. They're growing up in circumstances that weren't of their choosing. They didn't put themselves in that situation. And this is you today. I could say that you are the victim of circumstances in many ways. He says, do you realize, and he begins to speak to the parents, they're old men. When we were boy, boys, our boys have got it ten times the temptation that we have. So now at 1956, as these young women are coming forward for prayer, he identifies them as victim of circumstances. And then he addresses the adults. He says, the boys today have it ten times harder than you did. Sister, do you realize your daughter has ten times the temptation you had when you were a girl? So maybe we could say same temptation, but exponentially more. And if the parents say, well, I had the same temptations you had, but they, you got it 10 times worse. And what would it be for the next one and the next one and the next one's 10 times worse, 10 times worse. Says your daughter has it 10 times the temptation you had when you was a girl. What will her daughter have? Look at the things, the pictures, the devil's a painting. And then he says this, brother, do you realize we don't pray half as much as our fathers did? Pastor, do you know we don't put as much time on our knees as the pastors did before us? Women, do you realize you don't instruct your daughter and pray with her at night like your mother did you? So now it's twofold. You do have ten times more temptation than your parents. But then he's saying that the parents pray half as much as their parents. So you're facing ten times the temptation with half the support. That's what you're a victim of. You didn't say, hey, crank it to 10 times before you're born. Give me 10 times the temptation. No. And you didn't ask for your parents to do half the work either that their parents did. But Brother Bram is saying, this is what they're born into. 10 times the temptation. Brother Bram, in one place, he says this, but and it's often taken in the positive. But think, Luther walked in one light. Wesley walked in another. Wesley walked in one light. Pentecost walked in another, but we're walking on higher than that today. And if there's another generation, it'll go beyond us. My, that'll preach that there has been a, after Pentecost, there was another, this other generation that came up after Pentecost and you could take it to the third pool and the opening of the word and those great things. And how, if there's another generation, it'll go beyond us as it was Luther, Wesley, Pentecost, um, justification, sanctification, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and then the perfection. And you can see that, but it also true that it's worse. Luther walked in a light with so much darkness. Wesley walked in a light with just another bit of darkness. But then when you come to our age, it's the darkest it's ever been. And if there's another generation in one sense, it'll go beyond that of Pentecost and Wesley, Luther, Wesley and Pentecost. It'll get higher, but it's also at the same time outside of that supernatural realm. That's this other generation has gone deeper in darkness and it's gotten worse than what the Pentecostals faced. Brother Bram, in the message, Power of Transformation, he says, now the deformer has taken 6,000 years to deform that word of God. And what has he done? He's brought himself to a new type of Eden, Satan's Eden. That's where we're living today. Satan could not create an Eden. He could only deform it. God took 6,000 years to create a perfect Eden. Then Satan has taken 6,000 years to deform it. 
He says, now he had 6,000 years to do it with this poison spray. How did he do it? This is the striking part. He did it by civilization. He says, now I'm not trying to support ignorance, but did you know that civilization, science, education, and the things that we cherish so great today are the very instruments of Satan. So it's things that we cherish. The, the things that have come from civilization, science, education. I appreciate these things. I cherish them. I was able to fly my whole family here. We didn't have to take a horse and buggy. We didn't have to do a, 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 a wagon train. We didn't have to do the Oregon Trail and hope that we survived dysentery. It was, what, anything, we didn't do that. We could fly here. We cherish it. We cherish all the technology that we have. Civilization, science, education, and things that we cherish so great today is the very instrument of Satan. Even civilization. He says that civilization come by Satan. He says now, and he speaks of a word civilization that will be. And so there's a civilization of God, which is according to the word. But this is modern civilization. This is civilization that Satan has orchestrated and designed. He says civilization is not of God. In this civilization, the more civilized we get as we work through science, we are always killing ourselves. And this civilization has built up to its pinnacle now. So Satan's program has come to its climax. God had a perfect Eden. Now Satan gets his perfect Eden to the way that he wants it. At the pinnacle of Satan's Eden, Brother Bram says civilization, education lead to death and chaos. So if it's built up to its pinnacle, it's the pinnacle of chaos. If it's part of, if it's civilization, science and education, civilization and education lead to chaos. Brother Bram said now all again has come like it was before God moved upon the earth. It's become a spiritual chaos. In Genesis 1, it was dark and it was chaotic. It, was, it says the earth was without form and void. And it means it was, it was just chaos. But then God began to move. The presence of God and the spoken word began to move upon creation. And it brought order where there was disorder. And Brother Bram says now, at the end of Satan's Eden, it's back to the condition it was before God created his Eden. It's back to chaos again. It's what you've been born into. Chaos. Brother Bram says this chaos of this modern scientific Eden that we're living in of culture, science and education and all this modern stuff, this modern stuff of science and education and culture. It's chaos. Says it again, the chaos of science and education and the things of the world and the understanding of this modern day. It's the pinnacle. It's the climax of Satan's Eden. It's where you're living and it's chaos. It's confusing. It's hard to make sense of it. They make fun of us for our faith. It takes a lot of faith to believe some of the things they believe. To do some of the things they do. Come with us. We're going to march for women's rights. Come on, let's do it. We're going to go march for women's rights. Okay, go march for women's rights. And then the next day, we got to march for Islam. We need to be tolerant. We need to be inclusive. And you're like, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to, never mind. Because they don't have any, there's no barriers. It's a crazy time to be living. But as Brother Brandon was showing, and we could take time just to make, we could have taken time to bring it out perhaps in a much better way. But just mention these things and getting you to think about it. Satan's Eden has come to its perfection. After God had his Eden, after 6,000 years, Satan has been able to bring it right back to chaos again that existed before God created his Eden and brought his Eden by the spoken word. So if we look at the beginning, I'm just going to share this last thought and we'll end tonight. If you look at the beginning of Satan's Eden, there's a type in that that points to the answer for all the chaos. 
And there's a great promise to us in the end. As we see it in the beginning, God left us a type to know what we should do in the end. As Satan began his Eden in the midst of chaos, there's, there's a story there I want to relate to you that helps us to understand what it is, what there is for us in this end time, in this crazy world that you're living in, with all these things that you're facing, all these pulls upon your flesh, all these things that you want to do. Uh, the future that seems sometimes to lay out before you and you see things, you hear things and you see people enjoying things and you find yourself getting a little bit of a taste for it. But then all of a sudden you're confronted with something and now you have a conflict. Well, it seems as if I go that way, I'll displease my parents or it's not pleasing to the Lord or it's going to cause conflict. And in the midst of all this wrestling and all this struggling, there's something that's shown to us in the beginning that's the answer to all the chaos. And I'll go through this very quickly if I can. In Genesis chapter 4. The first two children ever born were born into chaos. And you talk about a chaotic time. They didn't have parents that could speak from experience and tell them what to expect. They didn't have generations of things to draw from. They didn't have a message that we would have. They didn't have instructors that we have. They were born into chaos. With the world still rapidly changing right before him. Adam would have at one time been able to speak to nature and it would have done whatever he wanted to. Now he's fighting with the soil to get bread. Now they're trying to learn. You ask yourself, who's the first guy to eat an egg? Or who's the first guy to eat that fruit? How'd they find that you could cook that and eat that? You know, how many people died from blowfish before they finally figured out how to flay it? Now, there's certain things you could, that you think about. Well, this is what they were living. Trial and error, going through things, trying to figure things out, trying to make their way. And, and what, one time there would have been a harmony with the animals. And Adam went through and named every creature. But now there's bitterness and animosity, enmity that's taking place between humanity and, and animal life and plant life. And two sons are born into this chaos with parents with clouded minds and maybe some flashes of things. And it was a chaotic time to be born. And as these young men grow up and come to the age of accountability, a God, they, they begin to offer worship. They were taught by their parents in a particular way and both offer worship, but they do both of them do it from different sources. Abel offers unto God a more excellent sacrifice and he does it by revelation. And Cain just offered perhaps from intellect and perhaps just as his carnality. And after Cain offers his sacrifice and Abel offers his, God has respect unto Abel's offering and he vindicates it. And so he vindicates this to Cain. And after he vindicates it to Cain, and as I'm running out of time, I'll just make quick reference to it. In Genesis chapter 4, 4 verse 6, it says, and the Lord said unto Cain. So here we are. Think about it. After the fall. It's in a fallen Eden. The way to the tree of life has been cut off. The channels of mankind have become clogged. Adam and Eve now are no longer thinking the same way. They're no longer relating to the same things. And humanity is degraded. It's fallen. The holy image of God has left Adam and Eve. Now um, uh, Abel is being raised by a father who's not in the perfect image of God. Yet he did come from God. And, and the woman is now culpable in the fall. And she's been cursed. And there's been a great curse placed upon the earth. A curse placed upon the woman. A curse placed upon the serpent. And there's a great prophecy that now exists that the seed of a woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. So now Satan is always nearby when a man's born to try to figure out, is this the one? And as this humanity, as they come to worship in the midst of all this chaos, God speaks to Abel and gives him a revelation. 
So despite the chaos, despite the fallen humanity, despite the curses, despite everything that's going on, God speaks to Abel and gives him a revelation of what would be pleasing to him. And Abel, in the midst of everything wrong, and in the beginning of Satan's Eden, where Satan is putting his plan into motion, and things are unfolding, he's like, this is wonderful. Now I've got a hybrid, and through the hybrid I have access to flesh. Because he could not inhabit the flesh of Adam and the woman. Because that was reserved to God alone. But he could have it, inhabit the flesh of a serpent. And then if he hybrids humanity, now he gets access to them. And now he has access to Cain. And now God though, it says in verse 6, that the Lord said unto Cain. So in the midst of the chaos, God can still speak. And then he says, if you'll just do well, will you not also be accepted? And notice what Cain does. He gets jealous and he gets upset. And the Bible says he went and talked to Abel. I want to know what he talked about. Because what what the result is death. I could just imagine a bully. And the threats. And intimidations. And the way that he tried to get Abel to relent. And Abel wasn't willing to do it. I, I don't know what Cain, God said to you, Cain. I, I don't know. I don't care what the family says. It doesn't matter to me what you threaten me with. It doesn't matter how you're going to intimidate me. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me if you think I'm going to be oddball and get outcast. I, none of your arguments work because God spoke to me. God showed me. I'm not just doing it to try to make it work. I'm not just doing it because I'm the keeper of sheep. No, I, I, I'm doing this because God showed me. And if God showed me that it was fruits, I'd find myself at your altar, Cain. But God spoke to me. And Cain the whole time knows that God's already honored it. Cain knows that God spoke to him. And then now he's wroth and he murders his brother. And then still yet in verse 9, it says, And the Lord said unto Cain. In the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all the confusion, in the midst of all this degraded humanity, God is still speaking. And in verse 16, after Cain does uh, has committed this murder and this atrocity, it says this about Cain. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod. I know some of you are nearing the land of Nod right now. And maybe you're just thinking about the, the snowboarding and, and the tubing and all those things. You're getting really excited about it. But just stay with me a little bit more here. In the midst of all that chaos, the voice of God was still speaking. And the Bible calls it the presence of the Lord. Where God was speaking, the Lord said unto Cain, the Lord said unto Cain, and what Cain ran away from. It doesn't say he ran from the voice of the Lord, but the voice of God was declaring the presence of God. In the midst of the fallen humanity, in the midst of the chaos, God was still speaking, giving revelation, giving instruction. Telling Cain what it would take to be accepted. Brother Bram said, see, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. There's where he made his mistake. He says, there's where you'll make a mistake. And there's where I'll make the mistake. The very minute we walk out of the presence of God. Brother Ryan, if you could come uh, to the piano. Those musicians that have the liberty to come, Brother Luis, the different ones. I know sometimes they, they don't necessarily have the young people playing, but I want the uh, the young people just to stay focused now. He says they read, the very minute he walked out of the presence of God, the very minute we leave the presence of God, the very minute we leave where he's speaking, that's where we get in trouble. He says, now notice, as soon as they went out from the presence of the Lord, they started building cities. They started making instruments. They started in science to making brass and iron, playing music and so forth. Now think about that. 
It was when Cain got away from where God was speaking that he began to work in earnest to build Satan's Eden. Satan's Eden, the climax of it, science, education, civilization. And then once they got away, once Cain got away, they started to build the cities and make the instruments. They started in science to make brass and iron, playing music and so forth. And they became the civilized one. And to be civilized, nowadays we think the term to be civilized or civilization is to rescue somebody from being a barbarian. But what it meant then was to rescue somebody from the simplicity of just serving God. The simplicity of just uh, 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 of living the way the lineage of Adam was living. And the way those that Abel was living, those that were after Seth. And so think about it. after the fall, Cain ran from the God's voice. He ran from the presence of God. And when he ran from the presence of God, he began to work in earnest and building cities and starting in science and uh, working with things. And we can take it through the scripture to show you. That's exactly what they begin to do when they fled from the voice of God. When they fled from the presence of the Lord, they begin to live and act very differently than the lineage of Adam through Seth. And it says this in Genesis chapter 4 verse 26. Now speaking of Seth. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son. And he called his name Enos. So now Cain's line goes and they become very civilized. And they begin to build cities and instruments and work in science and education. And that's the very beginning of Satan's Eden. And it's built up to its climax now. And now chaos is perfectly chaotic. Now Satan's Eden has reached its climax, it's reached its pinnacle, it's insane, it's chaos, it's confusing, and you're born into it. Yeah. With not, not a, of your own choosing. Born into chaos. Born into a chaotic world. Born to people around you that are fierce, they're savages, that they've gone totally insane. And because of the message that you have and the parents that you have, there, there's a, there's a, a sense of sanity that's deposited into you through family devotions, through the preach of the word, through the standards they try to lift up in the home. And the world works against it. And listen, the way I can try to portray it, perhaps in summary, is the world is in chaos and politics are chaotic and social things are chaotic. The environment's chaotic. Economics are chaotic. And the whole world's crazy and worldly people are realizing it's crazy. And 17 year olds who are worldly find that this time's confusing. But then you're born to message parents and you're thrust into a very unique, difficult situation without the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And so you're wrestling and struggling on a level that they aren't even wrestling on. I can certainly emphasize it in a way to you to where it is, it is an advantage, it is a privilege, it is a benefit. But I, I, God is wanting to approach it this way so you can realize He knows. He's not going to talk down to you. He's not going to belittle you. You message kids, raising the message. With message parents, you should be ashamed of yourself. And you're doing this and you're throwing, wasting the opportunity that God gave you to be a perfect generation. God's not going to talk down to you. He's not going to beat you up. He, he, he's not going to he's not going to try to uh, condemn you so much for like, fine, I'll just try to fit in. No, he's going to talk to you in a way that you recognize who you are. He's talking to you because he knows you. He's talking to you because he ordained you. He's talking to you because he loves you. And listen, I'm going to say this to you tonight. And I know the seed of God will not take advantage of this. He loves you so much. Do what you want. He's not going to stop till he gets you. And if some of you want to leave here with a hardened heart, we're just going to have to wait for you to come back. And I'll be preaching. And as I have an opportunity, I'll keep preaching. And we'll keep lifting it up until you come back. Because you're coming to this. 
This is what you're coming through. I don't care what your complexes are, what your fears are, what your past has been, what your parents have done. If you're the only one anymore in your family that thinks this is where it's at and you're struggling about going, you can go, but you're coming back to this. And God's never going to give up on you. And there's never a threat that we're going to get out of here without you because we can't. You've got to come for us to go. And God loves you so much. He's not going to leave you where you are. So he's ordained this season, this time right now to speak plainly to you, to speak honest with you, to let you know he knows what you're going through. And he put a type in Genesis 4 that you could go back to on a Thursday night, February 28th, 2019. And he can show you, I did that so you would know I could be with you in the end of his Eden. If I could speak to Abel in the beginning of Satan's Eden, I could speak to you tonight at the end of Satan's Eden. And if Cain would rise up to destroy and kill and Abel at the beginning of his Eden, then I know he'd try to do it in this Eden, but I'll preserve you this time. And it says, then to Seth was born a son and he called his name Enos. And then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Wow, what a difference from verse 16 to 26. Cain runs from the presence of the Lord. But now men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Now when you read that, it can certainly be presented in a way to say that men begin to call upon the Lord, maybe to worship him. But Abel was already worshiping him. What it actually means in the Hebrew is that they begin to call themselves by the name of the Lord. It wasn't that they begin to say, Lord, Lord. They begin to identify themselves with the Lord. They begin to call themselves by the name of the Lord. They begin to identify themselves with God. People have a problem with the God race. We'll start with Seth. Start with Adam. Because these men begin to look at themselves in the societies around them, in the civilization evolving around them, in the chaos that was around them. And they begin to realize we think differently. We respond differently. Our instincts are different. Our attitudes are different. Our desires are different. Our approach to things are different. And they begin to identify themselves and call themselves by the name of the Lord. They begin to call themselves as being related to God and identify themselves with God. Right there on a fallen earth. Right there in the midst of chaos. With the race developing and people coming up around them. With great accomplishments. And and great agendas. And great education and civilization. There was a place where they identified themselves. And a place where they knew this is what they were. And this is where they came from. And I believe it sits there as a type for us today to realize. There is a place of order and not chaos for you young people. There is in the midst of all the hurt and all the harm. There is a true, genuine place of safety for you. If there's hell on earth, there's a heaven on earth for you. And it's hell out there. But no matter where you go, you can find a heaven. In the Exodus, it didn't necessarily say that there was light in Goshen. But it said they had light in their dwelling. Wherever they were, they had light. Wherever they were, they were protected from the plagues. Wherever you go, you can have a heaven on earth. Whatever situation you're in, home life, school life, work life, economics, social, physical, it does not matter. There can be a place where you fit in. A place where you belong. My, just think of how the prophecies that come forth in the age that we're living in, of how that in the days of Lot, in the days of Noah, that's how our age is characterized in Luke 17. 
And Jesus says, planting, building, buying, selling, marrying, giving into marriage. That's how it's characterized. That it looks at all the eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, having, marrying, having children. This is what's taking place. You go, that we're there, definitely there. And, and Jesus, when he says it, he doesn't clue in on some of the other dynamics of it. But a prophet comes and says, in the days of Noah, their imagination of man was only evil continually. In the days of Lot, that there was great sexual perversion. And that's the time that you're living in. Those are the days that exist. And listen, I know it doesn't, you don't have to say amen to me for me to know it's true. And you don't need me to tell you for you to know it's true. Those are the days that they're, they're, that we're living in. The days of Lot and the days of Noah. But that's not the only day that's prophesied of. There is a true day of Lot out there. There's a true Laodicea out there. There's a true day of Noah that's out there. But it's in that day that the Son of Man is revealed. And so there's a day of Lot. There's a day of Noah. There's a day of day of Laodicea that's out there that you can live in. But a prophet comes and says it's in the day that the Son of Man is revealed. And there's a place that he reveals himself. And it's not down in Sodom. It's not left with those that are going into judgment. But it's a place where you're seated with Christ. There's a place where you can live. And you can actually say, I'm not living down there in Laodicea. I'm living on up here in the bright age. I'm living in a different age. I'm living in a different time. I'm living in a day when the Son of Man is revealed. I want to ask you, if the question is, who are you? you? I want you to identify yourself as the elect of God. That have been involuntarily, as it were, thrust into Satan's Eden. Which is trying to deform your expression. Brother Ryan, you just feel free to play something if it's on your heart. But in that scene, at the beginning of the chaos... And in the end of it, from the very beginning to the end, you're not like Cain. Because inside of you, something different. And Abel was a type of what you are. Seth and his sons, who begin to call themselves by the name of the Lord, they're a type of who you are. And the message, power of transformation, Brother Branham says, don't let the devil spray you with education and poison and stuff like that and this is this what they're saying to you you have to be modern you have to be this and there's so many things that are telling you what you have to be for you sisters it's anymore if you genuinely had in your heart the desire to be married to be a wife and to be a mother and that was genuinely what you wanted if you express that to other people they begin to think that you are subjugated you're abused that, that you've been you've been deceived and brainwashed by misogyny. If that was your if that was really what you wanted to be, in your heart you wanted to you wanted to get married in the simplicity of things. You wanted to be a wife and you wanted to be a mother. The world would tell you that's crazy. That you should be more than that, and that you should desire to achieve more. And after all the all the work you're after, everything that the women have done to blaze the trail for you and give you the opportunities, and all the social reforms and the economic reforms and the political movements and everything to give you the opportunity to be on equality and stand on equal footing and take advantage of educational opportunities and all these things. And you're going to sit there and thumb your nose at all the feminists who who've suffered, endured, and blazed the trail for you to become the women that you can be. And really, in your heart, you want to say. Yeah, I think that's just really what I want. But they tell you you have to be something else. And then the men face the same challenges in different ways. The world's trying to tell you you have to be modern. You have to be this. And Brother Bram says you don't have to be nothing but sons and daughters of God. Don't worry about all the rest of it. 
Don't worry about all the, the rest of what's, what's to be and what's going to happen. Just be who you are. And you don't have to be nothing but sons and daughters of God. So I can leave you with this. You've been born into chaos. And God knows. God knows what you're going through. God knows what you've been born into. Why don't you stand to your feet tonight? But in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all the confusion, there's a place. And I would, I would challenge you to seek it this weekend. To find that place. Say, Lord, I want to, I want to have a touch this weekend that makes sense of all the chaos. I want to, I want to have a, I want you to come by my way and give me this, this relief. So I can see your hand in my life and I can know that you're real. And you can begin to make sense of all the chaos that surrounds me. With your heads bowed. If you feel that the Lord spoke to you in a special way tonight and got your attention. You just want to lift your hand to him and say, Lord, just continue to speak to me this week. Lord, if you started this way, if you want to speak this way to me, Lord, I just open up my heart to you and say, Lord, just speak to me. As your heads are bowed and you've lifted your hands, I just want to pray for you, our gracious Heavenly Father. Lord, there's a tremendous atmosphere in this room tonight. Now, Lord, I just felt so impressed to speak to them these very things that have been shared. Perhaps, Lord, it could be said maybe to get their attention, but not because these aren't things that they don't know and these are things that they're not familiar with, but they're, they're living this, Lord. And the struggle's real and the things that they're going through are so pronounced. And, and the world's trying to confuse them. And young men and one, young women gathered here tonight with questions in their heart and challenges they're facing. That they feel that no one else is facing, that no one else is going through. And that are so unique that the devil would discourage them by virtue of the challenge. And not even their response to it. The devil would discourage them just because they're asked the question they don't have a quick answer. The devil would discourage them just because they're going through it. They haven't even succumbed. They haven't even been destroyed. They haven't even made a decision. But because they're wrestling, the devil's trying to defeat them. And Lord, I believe you wanted to come and say, right now, I want you to know, I know what you're going through. I know what the devil's telling you. I know what the world's saying. And I know how you view the world around you. And I already spoke it beforehand. I know you got it 10 times, 10 times, 10 times, 10 worse. And that may be half of a half of a half and a half of the support in some cases. But you're telling them that there's a way out. There's a way through and there's a way out. Lord, you're trying to show them from scripture. Just, I believe, Lord, I don't even need the scripture tonight necessarily. But just the Holy Spirit dealing with their heart is turning over something way down deep inside of them. Maybe there's a young sister right now who's feeling a little bit of hope after many days and months of hopelessness and despair. There's something that begins to stir up inside of them. Lord, it's what you've given them that's being quickened. It's who they are that's being quickened. And it's all that poison spray that's being pushed away. And I say, Lord, from this moment on, push back the poison spray. Let the word wash us from the poison spray. Wash us from the civilization, science, education, this modern way of thinking that you can penetrate through all that and get to the real heart of us, Lord. Lord, as young people raise their hands in response to the word, may that effort and that move of raising their hand be something that sets in motion a tremendous victory this weekend. 
And Father, I commit them to you tonight. Thanking you for this wonderful presence and the great pull and expectation in these young people's hearts. We ask these things in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Do you feel good tonight? Do you believe God spoke to you? I believe God wants to continue to speak to you. This is, this is just the beginning. This is just the start. And I want to just, if God will give me grace just to begin to take the things we talked about tonight and just build on it. And build on it. And no, God is interested in you. He's mindful. He knows what you're going through. And he's going to speak honestly to you this weekend to help you to know. And speak in such a way to realize that has to be God. That's him. And he's doing it because he loves you. He's interested in you. He's not going to give up on you. So if you need something, just start presenting it to him. If you need something this weekend, whatever doubt, whatever hopelessness. Listen, let's just be real. Many of you have been here before. Maybe back last August, you were in a tent very close to here. And you went through prayer lines and you went through the motions. You did a bunch of things. And it didn't quite work out the way you thought it would. Maybe this is the fourth or fifth winter camp. Brother Aaron, I've heard you so many times. I can tell you where you're going. We could talk afterwards. I'd like to know myself. But it's going to be different this time. It's going to be. Cycles are going to be broken. It's going to be different this time. So whatever the habits have been in the past, whatever the ups and downs have been, just get it all out of your head. None of that applies anymore. There's times in sports can say, no team has ever come back from this deficit before. It's never happened. And, and they use that as some means to say that it won't happen. But just because it's never happened doesn't change the probability of it. And listen, with man, there's things that are impossible. But with God, it doesn't, not necessarily even possible, probable. I'm going to say not even probable. It's going to happen. With God, it's going to happen. So just get out of your mind past failures. Get out of your mind past cycles and the way it's been before. It's different this time. It's going to be different and God's going to do something for you. And he's going to speak to you. So keep that in your hearts and your minds as you go forward. This is a special time. And put these things before the Lord in prayer as you go forward. God bless you. I love you very much. I'm very, very, very happy to be here. And I think maybe just even the unique way that God may want to just even taste of these services. He's going to speak to you. And you're going to get what you have need of. God bless you.